May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be now and always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Dear friends, this is not at all the sermon I thought I was going to preach on today's text. I thought I was going to preach on common grace on the work of the Holy Spirit towards the world. Maybe I will sometime share some thoughts with you about that. But in the meantime, Terry died. And the texts now speak differently. I want to start with the passage from James. He says that if we are hearers of the word and not doers, we're like those who look at themselves in a mirror, where they look at themselves and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. I had never understood this passage until very recently. Do we forget? what we look like in the mirror. Partly there is a cultural difference here. We are surrounded by mirrors, all too many of them. And we see what we look like all the time on the screen and on Zoom and in photographs. In the ancient world, mirrors were uncommon, small and made of polished metal and owned by the rich. Most people did not often see what they looked like. That's why Narcissus in the ancient myth did not know that his reflection in the water was a reflection of himself. But James's point is something else. He wants to draw a contrast between the fleeting sensory image in a mirror and the abiding knowledge that God has of us and gives us access to when we look into the perfect law of liberty. A passage at the beginning of our reading for today makes this contrast clear. Jenna Hawkins read it at Justin's wedding two weeks ago. James says, every generous act of giving with every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God does not change. And the image in the mirror is constantly changing. 
God is not one of the lights in heaven which change, but God is the father of lights and does not change. The contrast here relates, I think, to God's eternity. Though not all Christians agree with me about this. Boethius says that eternity is the whole perfect and simultaneous possession of everlasting life. God, that is to say, sees all of our time at once, but we experience it in everlasting or endless sequence. This means that we never see the whole of it. We do not have to say that the change is unreal, but that God sees it differently than we do. We do get glimpses, however, every now and again, of what our lives are as a whole, of their shape. Shape is something, after all, that is visible at a single time, not a sequence of before and after, the shape of a pumpkin or a cricket bat. This is all very metaphysical. And I want to give you an example. Terry was in hospital for the last time. She was still able to get out of her bed. And she was in the reclining chair. I had an ear infection, a polyp, which was discharging and painful. And I was kneeling on the floor with my head in her lap as she put in the prescription ear drops. The nurse came in and asked if I was proposing. When the nurse went out, I said to Terry, still on the floor on my knees. Terry, will you marry me? <laughs> and she said, yes. And then she asked me, will you marry me? And she meant, still with all this disease and suffering and anxiety, And I said, it's the best thing I did in my whole life. The point I want to make is that at that moment, my life came together. It had shape. I remembered that I promised almost 45 years ago to love and cherish Terry in sickness and in health. And she'd promised that to me. And I remembered how my mother had looked after my father and shown me from my childhood how to do this. My experience was what Dan Pluger called three weeks ago in the words of his mother, 
an eternal moment. I think we're sometimes given a glimpse of what our lives look like from God's perspective, from the perspective of eternity. We get a glimpse of their shape. One way to put this is that the end is already in the beginning. This is how T.S. Eliot puts it in the Four Quartets. I've been rereading these poems during the last months, and I have found them a consolation. Eliot writes, we shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. This is also the thought of C.S. Lewis in his book, Pilgrim's Regress. In this book, the pilgrim starts off his long pilgrimage, not knowing his destination, but confident that he will know when he's got there. And what he discovers is that the place he finally arrives at is the place he started from. The progress is a regress. There are many questions here. Does this mean that our destination is already set when we're born and we have no say in the matter, no freedom of choice? I cannot get very far into this now. But one thing to say is what Augustine already said, that what God knows all at once in eternity is what we will freely choose. God's knowing it does not cause it against or independently of our will. James, in our passage, contrasts the shifting image in the mirror with one who looks into the perfect law of liberty. He is seeing the law as a different kind of mirror. When you look into it, you see not your shifting self, but your whole self, yourself as God sees you. In the Greek, the face you see in the material mirror is yourself of becoming, of genesis, of change. What you see in the mirror of the law of liberty is something different. Yourself in Christ. Though James does not put it exactly this way, his language is that the soul is saved through the implanted word. But it's important that this implanted word by which we are saved, which James calls the law of liberty, is one by which we are made free. Having described an eternal moment, I next want to emphasize that it is always partial or fragmentary. 
and it, it is always succeeded by other moments. These next moments may be shattering. They can be the death of the person you love. And then you have to discern how the shape of your life fits the new world you're in. The eternal moments come, Eliot says in the four quartets, in prayer. We try to bring our lives under God's perspective by making our worship, our confession, our thanksgiving, our petition before God. When Terry was dying on that last day in the hospital, she did not seem to be conscious. We were not sure because we sang to her and played music that she loved. And the sense of hearing, and especially the hearing of music, lasts longer. We played Bach's second gamba sonata, which she and I used to play together. Leslie, her sister-in-law, and I played it, played the third movement at the funeral. But the fourth movement goes like the wind. And there is a particular passage which always caused Terry difficulty. When we got to that passage in the recording, Terry groaned. The nurse said it was not pain, but she was communicating something. In any case, we don't know to what extent she was conscious. But we had removed all the extra equipment, the catheter for the dialysis and so on, because they were not working. And we knew she was going to die soon. I sat by her bed. She was so beautiful. I put my arm on hers and my head on my arm and I prayed five things. First, I told her that I loved her <laughs> more than I myself. <laughs> Second, I thanked her for all that she had been in my life, in our life together. And then I asked her to forgive me, especially for the, all the invasions of her body that I had consented to, including the dialysis and the animus of the rest of it. Terry was a fighter. A few days before, she had asked 
our oncologist, what her, Terry's role was. And Dr. Natalia had said three things, to eat the food on her plate, drink liquids and move. So Terry insisted on going for a walk in the corridors with her oxygen. And when she started getting tired, the nurse said it was time to go back to the room. But Terry refused and insisted on completing the circuit, even though it wore her out. So we decided we should give her another chance to beat the disease. And I consented to all these procedures, but only for 48 hours to see if there was any good result. And there wasn't. And I knew that Terry did not want to suffer when there was no good chance of success from it. So the third thing I prayed was for forgiveness. The fourth thing was that I promised I would do my best to look after our two sons. And then, barely three weeks later, I forgot Thomas's birthday because Terry always did birthdays. More forgiveness necessary. The fifth thing was that I committed her into the hands of God. But all of this, all of our prayer is an attempt to put ourselves before God and into God's loving hands. I found T.S. Eliot helpful in part because he sees the destruction and the horror in the world, and he is clear-eyed about it, writing at a dire moment in the Second World War. But he sees that even through all of that, we can still say with Julian of Norwich, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. In my own case, I can say that Terry is now with Jesus. David Mahan said that she's probably giving Jesus an earful about me. <laughs> the love we had for each other is part of the end that was already in the beginning. The end towards which we are headed in the communion of saints. And God has something good for me, something that will belong to the shape of my life and the shape of Terry's and my life together. I do not know what that is yet. And I feel mostly the absence of the good that came before. But God does not forsake us. I think of Terry, my beloved, still speaking to me and saying, arise, my love.
my fair one, and come away. For now the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. There is still good fruit that our love can produce, and I just have to be open to seeing it. That fig tree will still bear figs, and the vine will still blossom. Love is strong as death, and many waters cannot quench it, or the floods drown it. There's another reason I like these, these poems. John Kittard was talking two weeks ago about a faith that is more than merely personal piety. A faith that includes concern for our society. God's knowledge of us is not merely of us as individuals or as couples, but as peoples. Eliot is reflecting about the English Civil War and the two parties, the King and the Parliament, who made war upon each other. We have a memory of this history here in New Haven, where three of the judges who condemned King Charles I to be beheaded, Dixwell, Wade, and Goth, have major streets named after them because they escaped here from British persecution when the monarchy was restored. They hid in the judge's cave on West Rock. But Eliot reflects on a small church at Little Giddy, where King Charles went to pray after a disastrous military defeat. And he says that those on one side and those who opposed them and those whom they opposed are folded in a single party. We inherit from them not just what has been, but what might have been. We belong, despite the tragedies we inflict on each other, to a people together. Another symbol of this is behind the rotunda at Woolsey Hall. where the names of dead Yale alumni from the American Civil War are recorded. They are recorded in alphabetical order, both from the North and the South in the war, together in the same tragic list. We need now this sense that those who oppose us and those whom we oppose are part of one people, despite the tragedy, folded into one people. 
I have one more point. And it takes us to the gospel for today. Terry was a doer, not just a hearer of the word. I've been going through her notebooks and I am amazed by how many people she reached out to and kept in touch with from her school friends to the people she was close to in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania and Grand Rapids, Michigan, and now in New Haven. And she had a heart especially for those whom society has marginalized. In all the places we have lived, she was active in social justice groups, tutoring and mentoring and distributing food. Her contribution to the MICA 6-8 posters is at the back of the church. And it says, no justice, no peace, with the footsteps of one walking. But in all of this, she was following the implanted word that James talks about that has the power to save our souls. In the gospel passage, Jesus is in dispute with the Pharisees and some of the scribes. They're concerned that the disciples are eating with defiled hands. That is to say, without the prescribed ceremonial washing. Jesus rebukes his accusers, saying that they are replacing the law of God with their own merely human traditions. What defiles us, he says, is not material stuff from the outside. It's the immaterial thoughts in our hearts. I see very much the same contrast here as in James. There's the physical image we see by looking in the physical mirror. But what we see when we look in the mirror of the law of liberty is our abiding and immaterial character. And Jesus says more. It's not just the thoughts that defile us, but the intentions we form. The thoughts on their way to action. The same is true on the good side. It's not just the thoughts that purify us, but intentions, good thoughts on the way to action. Alexandra Green said last week, quoting from the poet Rilke, only in our doing can we grasp it. And what she said inspired me to do more. And I'm looking forward to the session with her after the service. In the story of the wedding at Cana, Jesus's first miracle in John's gospel, there are the six huge jars of water that Jesus turns into wine. This is water for the very type of ceremonial washing that the Pharisees and scribes are talking about in our gospel for today. Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars to the brim, which they do. And then he tells them to draw out the water and carry it to the steward of the feast. My reading of this is that the water becomes wine, not in the jars, but as it is drawn out. 
And that's why John emphasizes that the servants who drew it out knew where the wine had come from. That might be wrong, but it's a good image for what Jesus is talking about here in Mark. It is as the thoughts are drawn out into action that they purify or defile. Terry's thoughts were not merely that it would be nice if someone did something to help the homebound get food. She formed the intention to do this herself. And then she went ahead and did it. She was a doer and not merely a hearer. It is as though Jesus in our passage from Mark is saying that the ceremonial water for washing has the potential to become wine, but only if it is accompanied by a washing of the heart. And his opponents have taken God's perfect law of liberty and replaced it with merely outward observance. They've turned the wine back into water. That's why loving in the Christian tradition is described as an activity of the will or the heart and not an activity of the intellect. Love is not merely admiration. Admiration can indeed be merely a postponement of action. Oh, what a great exemplar, we say of someone we admire, and then we leave it at that and do nothing about it, as though the admiration were enough. Love is intention and then action. And this love of ours is a response to the love we receive from God, even if we do not know that that's where the love is coming from. It is a part of the character of love that the appropriate, the called for response is more loving. So we end up after all with the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Romans that God has poured out his love into our hearts by means of the Holy Spirit, who is God's gift to us. I want to end by thanking all of you who have supported Terry and me through this journey we've been on. You have been vessels of God's love to us. My two sons, who do not identify themselves as Christians, were deeply touched by your demonstration of love for Terry and me. I think it is rare in our world to have this kind of community. And I'm very deeply grateful to you and to God for you. You have been not merely hearers of the word, but doers. Thank you. Let's pray. Dear God, we pray for glimpses of the shapes of our lives as you see them. And we pray to be doers of the word and not hearers only. 
In Jesus' name we pray.